God's word today, we'll be looking at 1 Corinthians 4, verses 6 through 13. I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn by us not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. For who sees anything different in you? What do you have that you did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? Already you have all that you want. Already you have become rich. Without us, you've become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you? For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. We are held in honor. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. To the present hour, we hunger and thirst. We are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor, working with our own hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of all things. This is the word of the Lord. Well, if you uh, have been watching any kind of news over the past three or four days, you will discover that... The major news-making story is what? LeBron James, who has decided to leave the heat and go to Cleveland. The titles are fascinating. The headlines of uh, talking about uh, LeBron James, uh, the king is coming. Uh, Some say they appear to be messianic in nature, as if he is coming to save Cleveland from all its woes. After the early service, someone who used to live in Cleveland came up to me and said, have you been to Cleveland? They need something. And so maybe that's the case, but it's fascinating how in our culture, we are inclined to worship people. And specifically in our culture, we are inclined to worship sports. In this country and in countries around the world, we are drawn in by athletes and drawn in by the, uh, the uh, notoriety of these folks. Yet I think underneath it is a more uh, difficult to gauge desire and object of our worship, which I think is success. We bow down and worship the God of success, be it in sports or business or church or ministry or the evangelical landscape, we worship success. I'm reading the new uh, biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, very thick book, very insightful look into Bonhoeffer's life. And what the author says is that the reason, one of the reasons that Germany, when they saw the atrocities that were being performed, even on their very unweakened Germans, and in a sense turned their eye, was of the allure of success. Hitler was undoing what France had done uh, 15, 20 years earlier by defeating Germany. Hitler was undoing that, and they were drawn into national success so much so that it blinded their eyes 
and they could not see the horror of what he was doing. We are attracted to successful people and successful endeavors. There is nothing wrong with success. Success is a good thing, but if you take one little O out of any good thing in our life and we slide it over and it becomes God, we are in trouble. And so what happened in Corinth? The Corinthians were enamored by success And as such, they begin to choose between the successful Paul or the successful Apollos. And they uh, rallied around them, and Paul speaks into that with uh, a couple of responses. Number one, he says, we are not who you think we are. We as apostles and preachers are not who you think we are. Secondly, you are not who you think you are. Why? Because you did not buy what you now possess. He says, we are not who you think we are. You are not who you think you are because you did not buy what you now possess. How do we see Paul saying that to them? He says, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, meaning these tests of uh, spiritual leadership, that you may learn by us not to go beyond uh, what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor of one against another. Now commentators, those who study scripture and study the original language and the history behind it struggle to understand this statement that you may not go beyond what is written. And in however many commentaries you read, you'll find almost that many different understandings of that one line. So you have to find a place to land uh, or just hover over. And so here's where I've landed. Paul has referenced the Old Testament five times already in the book of uh, 1 Corinthians in this letter. He's referenced the Old Testament five times. And if you take those five references to the Old Testament and summarize them, here's what you discover. Do not boast in human beings. You could summarize those five references and they say, do not boast in human beings. I think what Paul is saying when he says, do not go beyond what is written, is here's what I've written to you. Don't boast, don't put your trust in, don't put your dependence on human beings. The Old Testament bears that out, and I'm applying it to you, Corinthians, in your current situation. As a matter of fact, he uses some pretty vivid imagery when he says it. He says, do not be puffed up. Do not be puffed up. It means to blow hot air. Don't blow hot air about this. Why? Look at verse 9. At verse 9, Paul says, For I think that God has exhibited us apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels and to men. We are fools for Christ's sake. This language, when you dig into it, all commentators agree that this language describes a war. And when a king has gone to war, he comes home from war. If he has won, there is a parade. And the parade in the war, in in his home country, serves this purpose. He will march his troops 
down the streets, and the streets are lined with wives who are so excited about the return of their husbands, and children who are so excited about the return of their fathers, and country people who are so excited about the uh, victory their country has won. And so this parade goes down the center street of the largest city in the country, uh, the capital city perhaps in the country, but at the end of the parade are some guys. They are not from this country. They are prisoners of war. And rather than choosing to kill them on the battlefield, they put them in the back And they march them down the city street and the people wait for this moment to jeer these people, to mock them, to uh, ridicule them, and to celebrate their victory. Paul says we have become like those prisoners of war. We have become a spectacle. We have become, as apostles, those to be jeered at, to be laughed at, to be mocked. That's who we have become. Now, when Paul paints that picture, let's go back to the original problem that the Corinthians have. If that truly is the case, and truly it is, For the apostles, could you imagine standing in the crowd, watching as they go down the uh, city street and they are in chains and they are beaten and they are bloody and they are mangled and you rush out of the crowd over to Paul and say, hey, hey, I choose this one. And you know, you grab your phone, do a selfie with the bloody, beaten Paul? No. Or say, hey, my favorite is Apollos, and and I'll go find Apollos, and there he is, he's a prisoner of war. No, you don't rally around prisoners of war. That's what Paul is saying. It's ludicrous. It's a ridiculous idea to boast in human beings. Especially these people that have been called. Verse 11, Paul goes on to talk about them, and he says, To the present hour we hunger and thirst, we are poorly dressed and buffeted and homeless, and we labor working with our own hands. He says we're just common laborers. That word uh, poorly dressed in another place means naked. Who are we to rally around? But yet, this is, this is so popular these days. You have your favorite music group, your Christian music group, and you want to rally around them, or your favorite preacher, and you'll run, and, and if you could see him and get your picture taken with him. I mean, could you imagine the ridiculousness of, uh, of that if he is a prisoner of war? We were just in Sanibel on vacation, Sanibel Island, Florida. Beautiful, absolutely beautiful place. Some friends of ours own a place there, and they kindly just gave it to us for a week. It's an oceanfront, spacious condo in a very nice place. We just never really uh, could have afforded to, to do it, but they graciously just said here. And uh, so we were there. They have wonderful trails through the island. You could ride your bikes all over the island. And so uh, on several days, we would ride bikes through the island. But there's one way to distinguish between the islanders, those who have a place there, and those who do not. And here's how. 
If you have a place there, guess what? Your bike doesn't have a rental sign on the front, right? Because you have your own bike. And so unless you have come in there and hauled the bike in, your bike doesn't have, it's one of those old touring bikes, you know, it doesn't have a rental sign. Well, guess what? Where we stayed, they had bikes. So I rode around all week pretending I lived there. I'm just kidding, I didn't. Could you imagine if I did just trekking around my bike and I go by the, uh, the people who have the rental bikes and I snuff my nose at them like you foreigners. Look at my bike, I live here. It would be ridiculous, would it not? That's what Paul is saying. We are not who you think we are. And however many people may have ridden by us when we were on our not rental bikes and thought, oh, wow, they must live here. <laughs> That's hilarious. We can never afford that. We have this idea We have this thought about those people, Paul is saying, in positions of leadership that is a mistaken thought, a mistaken idea. He's saying, we are not who you think we are. I was getting ready to mow grass yesterday, and as you know, interesting things happen when I mow grass. And so this, this kid was walking down the sidewalk. He saw me, and I know him. I've known him for several years. I was on the phone, and he walks into the drive. I get off the phone, and we begin a conversation. He came from a good family, a godly family who loved him deeply, but he rebelled against that, and he's still in rebellion against it. Still is now. And so I said his name, and I said, how are you doing? And he said, well, not so good right now. And I said, well, what's going on? And he said, my girlfriend, fiance, she, she broke up with me. And he said, Jerry, it's like I've lost part of my drive. It's like part of me is missing. I said his name again, and I said, "Uh, I know you know I'm a pastor, and I know you understand that as you walk down into my driveway that I'm going to give you a theological answer. But let me start with anthropology. Anthropologists, when they visit new places, discover in every place they visit that they worship something or someone. I said, so inherent in every single human being is a desire to worship. And I said his name, and that's in you. You long to worship all your life. He's 25. All your life you have longed to worship. And I said, I have observed you. I've watched you fall at the, at the altar of drugs. I've seen you worship them until they almost devastated your life. I've watched you worship rebellion against your parents. I've watched you worship the dangerous and disastrous God of anger. But now this is a softer God that was on the throne of your life called a girl. And you thought you loved her and she thought she loved you. So much so that you bought a ring and she is everything you've ever hoped for. And she says, I'm out. And when she does, another God has yet fallen in your life. I said, and he and I have this kind of relationship, I said, but let's say you were walking down the sidewalk, and as you were walking down the sidewalk, you, in a drunken stupor, slipped into the road, or high on drugs, slipped into the road, and I happened to see that, and I rushed to save you, and rushed to pull you out, and in so doing, I died. As soon as you came to your senses, you would feel horrible. 
because I lost my life so that you could live. And for the rest of your life, it would haunt you. I said, but I know a God who died for you. And he died for me. And he rushed into the road of my sin. And he died in my place. And guess what? I don't feel horrible about it. I'm thrilled to be his. I'm thrilled that he did that for me. I don't go around all day long feeling horrible about it. He would hate that. Why? Because he saved me from myself. He saved me from my sin. I said, listen, your fiancé wasn't who you thought she was. We do this with people. We do this with pleasure. We do this with possessions, do we not? We set them up to be gods and they cannot satisfy. They will not satisfy. That's what Paul is saying here. We are not who you think we are. We're the POWs in the back of the line. No worship here. None at all. But he doesn't stop there. He says, you are not who you think you are. Look at verse 8. Already you have all you want, he says. Now, in my translation, there are exclamation points behind every one of these. Already you have become rich. Without us, you have become kings. And would that you did reign so that we might share the rule with you. Do you know why the exclamation points are there? This is completely sarcastic. Have they become rich? No. Are they already kings? No. They're in Corinth. They're not kings. They haven't become rich. They don't have all they want. Let me just do a little test of this. How many of you in this room have followed Christ for at least 10 years? Raise your hand. 10 years. All right? So you see all the hands that went up. So all of you follow Christ for 10 years. That's quite a long time. Those of you who follow Christ for 10 years, how many of you have everything you want? Raise your hand. We don't. There's peace that we don't have at times. There's joy that escapes us sometimes. There's temptation that lures us in and draws us in. You see, the Corinthians struggled with, big word, theological, over-realized eschatology. What does that mean? They saw themselves already in heaven. They saw themselves already at the end. And here they were in their current existence, and they lived within their current existence as if it didn't exist. And Paul is mocking them. And he said, oh, yeah, you're kings. Yeah, you got everything you want. Yes, that's who you are. When it really, really isn't. Look at verse 10. Paul gives contrast. He says, we are fools for Christ's sake, but you're wise in Christ." We are weak, you are strong, you are held in honor, we in disrepute. Paul said, we're the very ones who led you to Christ. We're the very ones who preached the gospel to you. We're poor, you're, you're rich, we're weak, you're strong, we're held in dishonor, you're honored. Does that make any sense? What's Paul's point? It's the way of the cross. We will never rise above a crucified Christ. We will never get beyond a crucified Savior. And a crucified Savior is a Jesus who un, uh, undo him, died in your place. And if you have come to faith in Christ, the only reason you can say, I'm a child of God, is because Jesus Christ, who never should have died, died for you. And you will never, ever get beyond that. It will either be Jesus 
and the way of the cross, or you are not going to be a Christian. There is no Christianity outside of that. There is no Christianity that says somehow you lift yourself above that. You're no longer there. You've moved beyond the milk of the word. You're no longer there. No, the milk and the meat are the same. It is Jesus Christ crucified for you in your place, hanging naked, shameful on a cross. That's the faith we have. Amen? That's who we are. Somehow they had in their minds placed themselves well, beyond that. Well, we were on vacation. It was uh, July 4th. And Sanibel's a beautiful place and just having a great time. And the kids had gone out to the beach already. And Wendy and I were cleaning up after dinner. It was late, like 6.30. And so we're walking out. And I said, honey, look at that boat. It, it's, uh, it was anchored a good ways out. And I said, that's not a boat. That's a yacht. And sure enough, I was trying to figure it on the length of uh, a basketball court, and it was about 135, uh, 130, uh, 40 feet long, this boat. Well, we were at a private beach, and nobody was there hardly all week, but there is this family sitting over there. And so I said, Hannah, what in the world is going on? And she said, you'll never believe it. That yacht stopped out there, and a skiffer boat came in, and that boat came in, and it was hauling these three women and the, these two children. And they literally carried these two of these women off that boat and sat them down on the beach. Well, as it turns out, we figured it out from our uh, old Fort Redneck Gawkin, uh, which is what proceeded for 30 minutes. Um, lie you not. We were like trying to do it, you know, out of the corner of your eye. You know how you do that stuff. So we're checking everything out. And what's happened is we figure this is a mom and her daughter and the daughter's two daughters and the nanny who's watching the girls. So the two women are sitting in seats and their feet are propped up in two other seats. So they're sitting their feet propped up. They have a table and we're just kind of taking it all in. And the nanny is going up and down the beach playing with the two children. Well, here comes the skiffer boat back. It takes it, they fly in. It takes it about a five, uh, maybe, maybe two minutes to get in from where they're docked out there and or anchored out there. So here they come back, and, and the guy, it's 6.30 in the evening. And you know how that hot 6.30 sun gets, you know, barely coming in. And so puts up an umbrella, angles it to protect these two women, and then literally serves them drinks. And we are blown away at this point. All right, so when that's over, he goes back out, and no sooner does he get back to the boat, to here he comes flying again. And when he does, he gives him some bug spray. I lie you not. He drove all the way, you know, drove all the way there and back for some bug spray. And so we're just watching this unfold. And then we assume this is the dad and the son, who's about Trent's age, and the dad. And they come in, motion that they're going to go uh, fishing. They go out to sea a little bit. They're out there for about 30 minutes. They come back to the yacht, unload them, come back in, pick up this family, and bring them all in. And Wendy is fuming at this point. I'll tell you why. The little girls have finished playing. The nanny has picked up all their toys, done all their deal. Uh, the two women, they've not moved a muscle. They're just sitting there, you know, feet in, uh, you know, back ends in this chair, feet in this chair. And the nanny is standing, and they won't offer her a chair. She's just standing there. I mean, they have two extra. So they go take them all back, but they leave all their stuff. And here comes the crew, and I said, honey, I've got to go meet this guy. 
you know, this guy that's, that's on the cruise. So I head over, and he's wearing khaki shorts and a white shirt, and it says ethereal right here. And I said, all right, can I help you out? He said, no, 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 we got this. I said, no, let me help you. And so I'm folding up chairs, and we're getting the umbrella together, and he had a little table he had set up for him. We're folding it up, you know, and I said, is this their boat? He said, oh, yes. I said, and so you just cart him around everywhere. He said, yes, we've been so busy lately, it's been crazy. His name was Joe. We met each other. And I said, so I'm helping him with this stuff. And I said, um, he said, where are the fireworks? And so now I'm pretending to live on the island and be rich. And so I said, uh, <laughs> they're around the bay. You just have to go around to the causeway, and you'll see the fireworks there, you know. And, and I said, all right, so this is well beyond, you know, my level of pay. Um, I said, but do you do this a lot? And he said, oh, yeah. I said, okay, where do they live? Because this is a, just a tiny little private beach on Sanibel. So I'm assuming if you're coming there, you go to Sanibel usually to find seashells, not just to prop up. And they live in Naples. It's 30 miles away. Just in case you're wondering, 30 miles. Probably a crew of seven people that they employed for a night out to go prop up on a beach, to go see some fireworks in their big yacht. Now, we have to be careful not to judge folks. They could be wonderful believers. We have to be careful not to judge folks. But immediately, we look at that and say, wow, that seems so extravagant. Here's the point Paul is making. They are not who they think they are, possibly. We are not who we think we are. Why? Because there's one leveling day coming that the Corinthians are pretending is already coming, has already come, and that's called death. Does death not level everything for everybody? You can't be smart enough to outsmart it. You can't have enough money to outdo it. Death is coming. And at the point of death, it doesn't matter if you have a yacht anymore, does it? It doesn't matter if you have a string of degrees past your name anymore. None, all of a sudden, none of that matters. All of your earthly accomplishments are gone at that point. None of it matters. And the Corinthians are living as if everything in this life matters. When here's how it works. If I take uh, my finger and dip it in the Gulf of Mexico where we were last week, and I dip my finger in and I let it drip, that drip is my life, that gulf is eternity. My life is the drop of water. The Gulf is the eternity, is eternity. The Pacific Ocean, the Atlantic Ocean, that's eternity. We so get that confused, do we not? And that's why we bow down and worship LeBron, and that's why we worship possessions, and that's why we worship uh, 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 people and, and success in so many different things. Paul says you're not who you think you are. Why? Because you did not buy what you now possess. Look at verse 7. He says, for who sees anything different in you? We could translate that. Who do you think you are? What do you have that you did not receive? James 1.17, every good thing given and every perfect gift comes from God. Every good thing given and every perfect gift comes from God. Your paycheck you got this week, God gave you. Your children are a gift from God. Your health is a gift from God. Every good thing given you said, but Jerry, I worked hard for that. But who gave you the health to work hard for that? 
who gave you the intellectual ability to earn the paycheck. Every good thing that you have comes from God. And so that's why that we cannot brag in ourselves of anything. Even those who don't know Christ, every good thing they have came from God. Period. Every good thing. You did not buy what you now possess. The Corinthians came to God because God saved them, not because they were good or smart or rich or any of those things. Paul says, if then you received it, why do you boast as if you did not receive it? All right, so I have uh, a watch on. It's a watch that I never, ever would have bought with my own money. I'll tell you that. I just wouldn't. It's just not kind of in my scope of things. I like watches. For some reason, I like watches. But I just wouldn't have bought this. But I was in a meeting with another pastor one day, and he had one on. And I looked at it, and I said, that's a cool watch. And he took it off, and he showed it to me, and that was it. Maybe four, five, six weeks later, we're in a meeting again, same pastor. And he walks into that meeting with a box, and he hands it to me. And I said, what in the world is that? And guess what it was? It was this watch right here. Now, what's so cool about it? Well, if you find this cool, if I get a text, it buzzes. As a matter of fact, in the early service, uh, youth sit all around the front, and they figured that out. (laughs) Two weeks ago, I was preaching, and my arm vibrated almost off because they were sending me. I got 18 texts. And as a matter of fact, somebody just sent me one. (laughs) You dirty rat. That shirt is mighty close to Clemson Orange, it says. So good one, whoever that is, you don't show up here, but I will figure out who you are. Uh, so, so it buzzes when I get text. And so these guys, I got 18 texts. It said, nice shoes, great smile, just goofy, ridiculous stuff. I mean, I wasn't reading them while I was preaching. My arm was just buzzing, buzzing off. So I was at a, 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 another meeting a couple weeks ago. I uh, wore the watch. Uh, my other watch band's broken, so I wore the watch. And this kid looks over and says, oh, wow, check that out. What was the first thing I said to him? Oh, man, a friend of mine gave that to me, right? It's just my natural response. I mean, every time somebody says something about it, I'm reminded somebody gave it to me. That's, that's what I'm reminded of. Somebody gave it to me. Every single time somebody points out your faith, what should be your number one response? Oh, somebody gave it to me. Somebody says, why do you have such joy when when in these circumstances, I would never expect you to have so much joy. Somebody gave it to me. Somebody says, you know, I've seen a lot of people go through what you're going through, but usually they don't have peace. Where, where, Where do you get this peace? It's a golden opportunity for you to open your mouth and say, what? Somebody gave it to me. Let me tell you about and every time I say, I have a friend, and like this pastor, he's a gadget guy. You know, he's a gadget geek. He has all the gadgets, and uh, as soon as a new phone comes out, he goes and gets one. He's just a gadget geek. And so he just thought it would be good for me to have it. You know what? Jesus is a, is a grace geek. Is he not? He loves grace. He loves to give to you what you do not deserve. He loves doing that. And all you can say is somebody gave it to me. Look what someone gave me. That's all you and I can say because you did not buy what you now possess. You say, dear, what effect does that have? Look at verses 12 and 13. It affects our behavior and it affects our perspective. 
you got to get this. You can't miss this. Or if you listen up until now, it's conceptual. Now it becomes actual. It becomes, okay, this is what I do because I'm not who I think I am. Apostles, preachers, they're not who I may think they are because we do not buy what we possess. What happens? Verse 12. When reviled, we bless. That's what we do. When somebody dogs us out, we lift them up. Really? Really. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. Wow. That sure is different than watching Mari, isn't it? Sure doesn't sound like Judge Judy, does it? I love that poem that says, he drew a circle that shut me out. Heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the will to win. We drew a circle that took him in. It affects our behavior. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. We try to reach out to the one who has hurt us. And it affects our perspective. How does it change? We have become and are still like the scum of the world, the refuse of of all things. Those two words basically mean the same thing. And here's what they mean. The word refuse means more to sweep the house and all the trash that's in the floor, that's refuse. Here's what scum is. Scum is on a dirty, hot, sweaty day to go in and take a bath And when the water recedes, that ring around the bathtub, it's called dead skin cells and dirt. That's scum. Paul says, that's who we have become. All right. How should this affect our perspective? We see how our behavior should change. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. But how should it affect our perspective? We view ourselves like scum. It seems like that could be damaging. It seems like that could be deflating or defeating. Here's what Paul is saying. I want teenagers to listen to me now. If your faith is so benign that it doesn't cost you anything at school, meaning you are never viewed as the scum like that goes around the tub, you are not living for Christ in that school. 
Because you and I both know you've got to swim upstream to do that. If single people, your faith is so benign that the way you date a girl is the way every other guy dates a girl, and you never look at her and say, no, I'm not going there. I'm saving myself. And she looks at you and doesn't understand. Your faith has not become real. If you, as a family member, among family members who don't know Christ, never endure persecution because you won't go here or say this or go along with this or there's an intellectual in your family who doesn't believe and thinks that you are foolish for believing you've not engaged them fully as you should Paul was in the social intellectual elite of the day a member of the Sanhedrin and now He's a POW. He had become the scum of first century life. If where you work, the dishonesty that you see, you never confront. You have not become, by confronting it, the scum of the world. Bottom line, the entire Christian faith is built on a Savior who became the scum of the world. That he might lead us to safety. And to be in sons and daughters of God. Jesus died on the cross. This week I had an unexpected visit here. Some of you have hosted um, exchange students. And this week the national director for FLAG, which is a large organization that places exchange students in homes, came by to see me along with the local guy who works with FLAG. And we were talking just about uh, uh, exchange students and uh, the program in general. And one of the rules of a flag, and probably most of these organizations that do this, is if a student comes, he or she cannot publicly declare a change of faith while they are here. It's in their rules before they leave. Uh, They may have some change of faith, but they cannot say it out loud. They cannot publicly declare it. And with many of these, the State Department is involved if they're being funded by a program of the State Department. And so that's the way it works. And Wendy and I have had three, and so that's the way it works. Well, the local director said he got a call from a guy who was here Uh, Two years ago, I I think somebody in the church hosted him. If not, he attended worship here for the whole school year that he was here. And he called Ron to say, Ron, uh, talk to him about several things. But then he said, Ron, I've got to let you know that I'm no longer a Muslim. And Ron said, you aren't? And he said, no. 
Ron said, then, then what are you? And I won't say his name. Some of you would know him to protect him. He said, I'm a Christian. And Ron said, well, tell me, when did that happen? He said, oh, it happened while I was attending Grace Community Church. Now think of this. When you came to Christ, didn't you want to tell somebody? Like when Christ came to live in you, wasn't there something in you that wanted to well up and you wanted to share with somebody that the creator of the universe had indeed saved you and you even walked into baptism waters and declared that in front of however many people were there, but this kid couldn't do it here. And he told Ron, my mom, my dad don't know. Nobody in my family knows. There's no way they can know. What's he saying? In my family's eyes, if I told them, I would be the scum of the world. He came over here an honored student to be able to leave his country and spend almost a year here. But if his family only knew that he's trusted Christ, he would be the scum of the world to them. Paul experienced that. And the Corinthians tried to celebrate him. And he said, you can't. What does that look like for you? I ask you to keep your connection card. Just yesterday, past three days, yesterday we were privileged to serve 80 children in communities around this county. There are backyard Bible clubs. Yesterday was our last one. And we are committed to getting as many of those children and more here for kids camp. And what Betty tells me that means is that we need more people to volunteer for that week of ministry. So some of you, your response to this today is to get your, get your feet dirty and your hands dirty with a bunch of little kids and, and serving in one of these areas. If you go down and look beyond, you'll see three other opportunities. Uh, we're getting ready to take down every chair in this room for camp this week. Uh, that we're going to have. But somebody comes in and sets these up every single week, all these chairs. They're, they never get credit. Nobody ever knows who they are. And so they're on a rotating basis. I think they do it about once a month maybe. Um, and some of you could do that. That's something you could do. Or a new ministry here, uh, hospital hospital visitation team, working in the food pantry, dealing with the worst of the worst in their financial situation at that time. There are opportunities for you to step out of comfort and become grimy for the gospel. 